This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at Ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Today, our total is 288 across 17 counties. And people of all ages, from 9 to 99, have contracted COVID-19. That's Governor J.B. Pritzker from yesterday's news conference. Now, yes, the number of cases is on the rise, but there are things you can do to slow the spread of the virus. And one of the best tools out there for the sake of public health and your peace of mind is good, solid information. So we brought in two experts to answer your questions about COVID-19. Dr. Russell Petrick is with Metro Infectious Disease Consultants, and Sarah Connolly is an Associate Professor of Health Sciences at DePaul University. Dr. Petrick, Professor Connolly, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Professor Connolly, explain how the virus spreads and how it's been able to spread this rapidly. So it's a respiratory virus, and it spreads through respiratory droplets, which mean that you can catch it when someone coughs or sneezes or even if they're talking. Um, Respiratory droplets can be spread three feet to six feet. Um, So you're going to typically, you'd be catching the virus from a close contact with an infected person. We do think it's also possible you could catch the virus from a surface on which those droplets have landed. Um, So if you touch a surface where there are droplets and then you touch your mouth, your nose, or your eyes, you could transmit the virus to yourself. There's also evidence of uh, transmission from mild or asymptomatic cases. So you can have people who are infected, but they don't know that they're infected and they're out in the public. um, And that is also contributing to the virus being spread. All right, let's get to the callers from our voicemail earlier this week. Francesca in Lakeview wants to know about what alternatives she can use while there's a shortage of surgical masks. Since there is a shortage of surgical masks as well as N95 masks, can your experts let us know if it's helpful to wear, say, a handkerchief over our face or just any clean cloth from home? Dr. Petrick, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are there's no data strongly suggest that that would be efficacious. However, uh, we do know that if you sneeze or cough, if you just um, use a barrier like your hand, you will diminish the number of droplets that will spread even three feet or four feet from your mouth. So that will clearly protect you. So if somebody were to wear something over their mouth, no matter what it is, whether it's a wool scarf or whether it's a handkerchief, uh, the likelihood that any barrier will help is probably significant. So I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it. Um, On the other hand, just allow me to dispel the the issue that we need an N95. Even in the hospital, for the sickest patients, the ones that are most likely to be contagious, we are only using N95s um, when there is the most significant risk of spreading droplets or aerosols throughout that particular room or, or corridor. 
we're using surgical masks even as healthcare workers predominantly. Um, and that's mostly because we have a shortage, but we're finding those to be as efficacious. So um, any mask is better than none, and any barrier is better than none. Well, over the weekend, Governor J.B. Pritzker shut down all restaurants and bars, but those places can still serve customers by drive through curbside pickup and delivery. And Christina from Jefferson Park has a question about buying food in those ways during the outbreak. I was just wondering um, what the risk is in relation to carry-out food and pickup food. If someone sneezes into the food while they're preparing it, how do we know it's still safe to eat? Well, Dr. Petrick, that's a good question. How safe is it to go through the drive-thru or get food delivered to your house? What's the risk of infection? The risk is going to be significantly uh, lower than anything that Dr. Connolly mentioned. Dr. Connolly mentioned the, the predominant ways that we know that this virus is transmitted. If someone sneezes directly on the food, I guess it is conceivable that somebody could then take a live droplet off of that food, put it in their mouth, and theoretically um, expose themselves. However, that would be distinctly unusual, number one. Number two, we know from other viral infections that the drying process, should it dry, makes the individual virus much less infectious. That has been true with HIV, with SARS-1, with MERS. But it's it's not zero because we do know, as Dr. Connolly said, that you can take the virus off inanimate objects. So I think it's it's distinctly unusual that that would be a risk. Um, probably not zero. Does heat affect the virus at all? The amount of heat that would be needed to affect the virus um, would be such that you would have to that the food itself would be on fire. Um, so it's not likely that you can denature the virus by warming up the food to any palatable level. All right, let's go to the phones. We've got Michael in Oak Park. Michael, what's your question? Is it true that all lethal cases of this uh, virus infestation happen because the body's autoimmune system kicks in and attacks the vital organs in the body? Okay, thanks for that question, Michael. Who wants to tackle that one, Dr. Petrick or Professor Connolly? So autoimmunity, is, I'm not aware of a, a link between autoimmunity, but I think the caller may be asking, is the response to the virus that there's an overactive immune response to the virus, and is that, what, is that what's causing the problem in people? And I, the caller also asked, um, is this in all cases? And maybe Dr. Petrick can talk more about this, but I don't think that that's the um, overriding cause of death here. Right. I agree 100%, Dr. Conley. Um, you know, we do know that there's an, uh, two levels of immune response there when we get any viral infection. And uh, the first level of response is, uh, unfortunately, not very protective. If it was, we wouldn't get symptomatic. So there's probably some patients who don't get much virus where the immune response that we have contains it. It's called our innate response. Then our second level response which kicks in a day, several days to a week later, is more fulminant, more definitive, um, and that has uh, been implicated in some of the morbidity and mortality that we've seen because it causes releases of enzymes called cytokines or proteins, and, and they can have adverse effects on us. And sometimes it has been thought that the lung disease that we see, which we are calling ARDS, where the 
the lung gets completely whited out, we have a very difficult time getting oxygen into the patient, is a result of those proteins at a high level in the body. We also know that when we check various parameters in the body, the immune system is turned on. There's a lot of proteins that are in the liver that are being released into the bloodstream in an attempt to, um, to attack and limit the spread of this virus. So there is some immune response that is probably deleterious to some people. However, as Dr. Connolly said, that has not been the case with every mortality. Uh, some of the mortality are directly due to viral invasion, and those come from autopsy studies, and <clears throat> so that may be a function of the inoculum and the fact that the person's immune response is ablated by virtue of underlying diseases like chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, kidney disease, people that have malignancies and are on therapy. And we also think that people that are on uh, steroids probably are also at more risk. Uh, let's go to another question we had about food. Uh, this came from Ron in Lakeview. I get the newspaper delivered in plastic every morning. question is, what should I do with that plastic? Should I, you know, should I touch it or not touch it? What about the newspaper itself? So, Professor Connolly, we are getting a lot of questions about how long the virus can survive on surface. Any advice for Ron there? Yeah, so there was a recent study conducted um, on several different surfaces, and they found that the range that the virus could stay viable was from a few hours to a few days. So it was more stable on plastic and on stainless steel than cardboard. But the virus doesn't just sit on that surface like unaffected. It slowly inactivates. So at an early time after someone sneezed on the surface, let's say, there's going to be more viable virus on that surface than later on. As Dr. Petrick said, like as the droplet dries out, the virus inactivates. So as time passes, that, that virus is going to start to inactivate on that surface. It's hard to say exactly how long a surface remains contaminated enough that that surface is actually a danger, because this is going to depend on how big the droplets are, how much virus is in the droplets, what the environment is, the humidity, the temperature, the exposure to UV light. So the take-home message is, like whether the virus can survive on the surface for a few hours or a few days, you do want to disinfect commonly touched surfaces. Um, you know, could you get it from your newspaper delivery? It's not impossible, but as Dr. Petrick said, it's not the most common way this virus is going to be spread, and it's not something that I'm, I would personally be concerned about. So as a good rule of thumb, so say you're, you're picking up something, a package or a newspaper, once you handle it, take that plastic off to go ahead and wash your hands after, you, after you've touched it just to be safe? Sure. It doesn't hurt Perfect. to do that. I would agree. I mean, if you're touching any surfaces, clearly surfaces that you're unaware who else has touched it or contaminated it, if you touch them with your bare hands, then wash your hands immediately after doing that or alcohol your hands if you don't have soap and water available. But that would be much more safe, I think. And But what Dr. Conley said is right. that the, the likelihood of transmission by that mechanism is going to be remote. So we've got our caller back who had a question about food. Go ahead. My question is uh, because I'm a greenhouse producer and my product goes directly into a restaurant. Uh, granted, you know, restaurants are shut down for a minimum next two weeks or so, but I'm wondering if there is any inherent risk with me continuing my production, granted that those greens and microgreens are being stored for anticipation of use in the restaurant once we're back on track. Okay, thanks for that question. Uh, Dr. Petrick or, or Professor Connolly, who wants to tackle this question? Can 
going to ask a little bit more. Are you are you concerned that there's going to be contamination in the food of coronavirus, or is are you just concerned about whether the food will stay fresh? My question is directly in relation to whether, you know, if I was a vector, which we all should be treating ourselves as potential vectors at this point, could I be leaving virus on the food and would it, would it survive there? And it just, is there any risk of transmission through the, the produce that I'm uh, producing? Okay. Professor Connolly? I would say, is there any risk of transmission through that produce? Like, I'm not going to say there's no risk, but it's not a high risk. And if the produce is sitting around, there's no, no reason to think that the virus would survive more than a few days regardless. Okay, thank you for that call and for that answer. Uh, we got a question from Emily, who's a dog walker, and she wonders about animal-to-human transmission. And, and Dr. Petrick, as somebody who's got two little fluffers at home myself, this is a question I'm hearing a lot. What do we know about that? Uh, we, we don't know much. Um, however, there has not been any documented transmission uh, that I'm aware of between animals, specifically household pets, and, and a human. So is it possible, I suppose, you know, our concerns always come from what we heard initially about China and how this virus theoretically spread initially. And I must tell you that those are partial information truths that I don't think we can put together um, in, any, in any knowledgeable way to, to suggest that household pets or any pets that we're in contact with could transmit this disease. So I would suggest the risk is very, very, very small. Okay, let's go back to the phones. We've got Andy. Andy, what's your question? Yes, thank you, doctor, and thank you, professor. What is the recommended method of disposing any of your articles that you're using, your wipes, your, you know, your ventilators? How should we dispose of those hazmats? Okay, Dr. Petrick. Well, the, there is no, um, as we've been mentioning, um, when our secretions, even if you had infectious secretions, when those secretions dry, they become far less infectious. So the two mechanisms that Dr. Connolly spoke of, where we are exposed in a very close contact within six feet for a prolonged period of time to somebody who is coughing, sneezing, etc., theoretically spreading infectious droplets. That's the biggest one. The second one is contact with inanimate objects where infectious secretions reside. Um, so, but as we've mentioned, once things dry, then that infectivity drops precipitously. So the likelihood that anything you're wearing, you know, a, a mask that you might be wearing to protect yourself, um, Anything like that, a wipe that you use on a particular surface. If you're using a wipe, it's theoretically the type of wipe that would have some ability to inactivate a virus that it would be in contact with. What you would do is you would dispose of it in the garbage as you normally would, and then you would immediately wash your hands in case you have actually inadvertently contaminated your hands. So you'd wash your hands or you would use alcohol on your hands. You would do hand hygiene after disposing of any particular article. Uh, we're getting questions about produce from supermarkets where it's been sitting out in the open. And oftentimes in, in markets they have ways of trying to keep the produce moist. And, and there are questions about whether that allows the virus to survive for longer on food. What can you tell us about any concerns we should have there? 
think what I'd say is that I always rinse my food before I eat it because it's always been touched by random folks. Um, <laughs> so I haven't changed my practice due to the coronavirus. Like I just rinse it and I wipe it off with paper towel and then I, you know, eat it. Um, whether keeping the fruit, I hadn't considered whether keeping the fruit moist is uh, going to increase the viability of the virus on the surface. Um, but I think, as we've been saying, like the likelihood that you're going to catch this virus from um, produce is low. But just a good rule of thumb in general, wash your produce before you eat it. Now I want to turn to WBEZ Cook County reporter Kristen Schorsch to talk about how prepared hospitals are to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. Hi, Kristen. Hi, how are you? Okay, so as we just heard yesterday, there was a spike of 128 new cases. That brings the statewide total to 288 across 17 counties. How prepared are hospitals for a potential influx of more cases? Well, they've been preparing for a long time, you could say within the span of at least a few months. Um, They're doing a lot of things. They are clearing out space within their hospitals. So like Rush University Medical Center, for example, on the near west side, they cleared out more than two dozen beds in a section of the hospital so that they could have room for COVID-only patients. Um, They are stopping elective surgeries. They are telling people, don't come to outpatient centers, do doctor visits virtually. They're just really trying to create space because Um, They haven't released projections yet, but they are expecting an influx of patients who are going to be sick and need those hospital beds. Well, two emergency room physicians at Rush Oak Park Hospital have tested positive for COVID-19. And that news came hours after Oak Park issued a shelter-in-place order late yesterday. How are medical staff protecting themselves from the virus? You know, they're wearing... um, personal protective equipment, think like masks, face shields, even goggles so that they don't get an infection, you know, through their eyes. Um, I know that supplies, though, are in high demand, short supply. Um, This is happening around the country. Doctors and nurses are are scared that they don't have the equipment that they need. Um, I do know, though, that the Chicago Department of Public Health, the Illinois Department of Public Health, um, they are, you know, looking to uh, give um, supplies that are stockpiled to hospitals. They're reaching out to the federal government to get extra supplies. Um, they really want to make sure that their frontline workers are prepared because if you think about it, if someone gets an infection, if they get COVID in, you know, treating a patient, that could wipe out, you know, dozens of other people on their staff. So it is really a high priority. So there are 209 hospitals in Illinois. Do hospitals have enough beds for COVID-19 patients? I think that's a really good question. Um, right now, the latest state data shows that hospitals use, um, you know, the most common beds about two thirds of the time. So they do have capacity, but really, how much are they going to need? I think that's a big question. I still don't have an answer to from public health officials. You know, what are they preparing for? Um, are we going to have enough beds? You know, I I think that still remains to be a big question. Um, But right now we do have capacity. By law, hospitals have to be able to surge 20%, meaning they need to be able to take on 20% more people than they do now. And I also think it's going to depend on the type of hospital you end up at. Um, I think the the academic centers, academic medical centers in in the city, like Northwestern, UC Rush, Loyola, they are preparing big time for this. They are going to be able to treat the sickest people because that's what they do now. But the smaller community hospitals, those that treat a lot of low-income patients in the city, 
are they going to have enough space? I think there's a big coordination effort happening right now. So hospitals are are talking to each other a lot. They're talking with public health officials a lot to figure this out. Well, we've been getting a lot of questions about testing. We know the testing at this point is very limited. But who is able to get tested? Where can they get tested? How much information do we have about that right now? Yeah, I'm fielding a lot of questions about that myself. Um, so the testing is limited. There is a short supply of tests um, that the the state's three labs can do. Hospitals are starting to provide their own tests, like North Shore, but there's still limited criteria of who can actually be tested. Um, public health officials, you know, they're really stressing that um, people who have mild symptoms stay home, isolate yourselves. You don't necessarily need to be tested. Um, but people who are really sick, I'm still hearing stories that they can't even get tested because there is such a short supply. The governor, you know, is really trying hard to get more tests at the state level. Commercial labs have stepped in. So, you know, we are going to see a lot more testing happening. Um, but at this point, it is still scaled back. Um, Advocate, for example, in Edward Hospitals, um, you know, they're doing drive-through testing. Uh, but even at that, this is not like a McDonald's where you can go and get a burger. Mm-hmm. This is, you need a doctor's order to get that test. So it's still pretty, pretty limited. Um, once we do get more testing, though, you're probably going to see a lot more positive cases just because it's going to become more widely available. When should people stay home and when should someone go to the ER if they're concerned about their health? So doctors are telling me, you know, so 80% of these cases of people who get COVID-19 are likely going to have mild symptoms. They're going to be able to ride it out at home. So those people should be isolating themselves at home so they're not spreading it. Um, Good question, though, in terms of, well, how do you know you have it? People who have a high fever, a cough, and shortness of breath, um, you know, those are all symptoms of COVID. Uh, If you get really, really sick, you have that shortness of breath, you're really worried, you know, um, call your doctor first. That's what they're telling people. Call your doctor um, before you go to the ER because they're really trying to spare the hospital beds for people who really are the sickest. And if you can't get a hold of your doctor, should you call the ER directly? I know people are doing that. Um, I think that's a great question. We've all been on hold with call centers and our, you know, primary care doc offices for a long time, even before COVID-19. I think that's a great question. Um, But they are pleading with people to please have patience, even if you're on the phone call, you know, on hold for, you know, I know that some hospitals have been on hold with patients for up to an hour, maybe more, because they're fielding questions about COVID. Um, But hospitals and doctors are still pleading with people to Stay home, call first, because they really want to keep those hospital beds open for the sickest people. Well, Kristen, before we let you go, Megan in Edison Park has a question for you. Megan, what's your question? My question is for hospital staff that are caring for patients with COVID. Where is the safest place for them to shower? Is it at the hospital facility where multiple people may be showering and there could be viral shower with the humidity? Or is it safer to do at home but then risk potentially exposing your family? Well, Kristen, I don't know if this is a question you can field. We'll, we'll turn to our infectious disease experts. Uh, that was WBZ Cook County reporter Kristen Shorsh. Kristen, thanks. Sure. Thank you. So, Dr. Petrick, I'll come to you on this one. Um, Concern about people who are out there caring for our families, how they make sure they're going home, you know, as safely as possible. Where is the safest place for them to shower? Well, showering implies that you're taking all your clothes off, of course. So if you many of our healthcare workers, what they're doing is they are um, getting up in the morning, showering, dressing for work, coming to work and then putting on some form of hospital gown, greens, et cetera, the usual stuff that you see 
many physicians work in. More doctors are doing that now. At the end of their shift or at the end of their day, they are stripping down from that, cleaning their hands or whatever material, whatever they think they could have possibly exposed their face, their hands, putting their clothes back on um, and going. Remember, this is unlikely to be spread of any other way except what we've talked about, contact with the droplet or contact with inanimate objects. If our doctors and our other and nurses, et cetera, are using the appropriate protective equipment, the likelihood that they're going to bring something home on their pants or their shirt is not zero, but it's much less likely. So the perfect scenario is whatever work clothes you have, leave them at the hospital and let them be laundered there. Um, and just wear your household clothes in the house and then transport to your fa- the facility you work in and then back. So I don't know it's a, as fun- much a function of showering as it is um, how you're going to handle your personal clothing. Okay, let's go back to the phones. We've got John in Oak Park. John, what's your question? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm an ex-pediatrician, by the way, recently retired. I have a question about the testing. Usually when tests are developed, they go through a pretty rigorous evaluation before they're uh, publicly used. And I'm concerned about false positive and false negative rates, both of which could be pretty catastrophic. What's the gold standard that they're using? Is there any quality control? Is there any oversight by different agencies? And how can different labs come out with equivalent uh, products? Um, and the other question I have, by the way, if I can fit it in, having been exposed over 40-plus years by many, many kids with uh, strains of coronavirus, is there any theoretical idea that I may have some protective cross, uh, cross uh, what's the word, <laughs> immunity? That's the word I was sure. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that call, John. So first, can you fill the question about, about testing for us? Well, um, John, first of all, uh, I'm sorry you're not in the healthcare armamentarium. We miss you. Come on back anytime. Um, secondly, your comments about testing are insightful. Um, these tests needed to be formulated quickly, so they did have oversight. There was checks and balances, um, but we have, and it's a PCR. That's the test we're using. And what does that Which mean is, exactly? Uh, uh, the PCR is uh, where we literally take um, a sample, and this would, in this case, it's going to be secretions from your nose or secretions from the back of your throat, um, and send it to the lab in a, in a viral medium. And we look for particular parts of genetic material called DNA, RNA, and we specifically look to see whether that's present. If it's present, then and it's clearly not supposed to be, then that is uh, consistent with an infected patient. What we're finding is that the test is very specific, meaning that we're not finding a lot of false positives, but we are finding some false negatives, meaning that it's not as sensitive as you know. And unfortunately, early on in the disease process, when your symptoms may be mild or you may have no symptoms whatsoever, that's when the test is the least sensitive. As you develop symptoms, the test becomes more sensitive, so there's much fewer false negatives. But we never get to 100% sensitivity. We really hover around 80 85% at the best time and down closer to 70% early on. So that's why if we're highly suspicious clinically that the patient has this, has COVID-19, even if we get a negative test, and we may treat if we need to, we may isolate if we need to, we may ask the patient to be quarantined. 
So for the second part of John's question, and Professor Connolly, I'll come to you on this one. He wanted to know, he's a retired pediatrician. He said he's been exposed to different coronaviruses over his time treating children, and he wonders if he might have some some cross-immunity to the novel coronavirus we're seeing now. I would say there's no evidence for that. Um, the pediatrician has been exposed to a lot of coronaviruses, but so have a lot of us. Um, and so without any evidence that you have existing protection from infection with other coronaviruses, I would say um, no. Okay, let's go back to the phones. We've got Tanya in Logan Square. Uh, Tanya, what's your question? Hi, first off, thank you so much for providing the public with answers directly to our questions. It's been a little trying. Um, my question is, my sister is eight months pregnant and works at a hospital. Uh, she's been in contact with two people that have tested negative. Is there any data uh, pertaining to pregnant women and this virus? Thanks for that question, Tanya. Dr. Petrick, Professor Connolly, who wants to take this one? Well, I can talk about the um, experience uh, with pregnant women in China because that's published. And um, they did not, by virtue of their pregnancy, it was a smaller number, thank God, but they did not, by virtue of their pregnancy, have an increased mortality. Um, Now, it's a small population um, and so it's not a, it, it's not something that we would tell you unequivocally that there's no risk. As a matter of fact, we know that pregnancy in and of itself is a slightly immunosuppressing physiologic event and that pregnant women are more predisposed to many other things. So I would be concerned. As a matter of fact, I have a, um, a daughter-in-law who's ex- going to be delivering any time in the next couple of weeks. We're very concerned. Um, about the possibility that she could contract it. So I would say there is a concern. She should be incredibly cautious, which I'm sure she is being. Uh, But the data we have would suggest no increased risk um, at the present time. And for children who have been born to mothers who uh, contracted COVID-19? Again, a very small number of of cases. um, And... No increased mortality, uh, as far as we know. There were some uh, significant morbidities in, in patients like that, but anytime you have a physiological aberration, such as a severe viral infection with pneumonia, the fetus uh, is going to undergo some stress. So it's difficult to differentiate between um, any infection that would have caused the mother that kind of stress versus just. COVID-19. Clearly, none of us would want to take any risk with anybody who's pregnant to protect the mother and the child. Um, But at least at the present time, that doesn't appear to be a tremendous uh, risk. If I could just say one thing, there's been a lot of information in in the newspaper and on the CDC website about the paucity of younger people getting this infection. And we are seeing a big upswing in younger people getting infection, and some of them are getting it severely. And it doesn't appear that they're all immunocompromised. So young people can get it. Many of them don't get very sick, which is wonderful, thank God, but they have the ability to transmit it, which is why you try to keep them away, especially the children from grandma and grandpa, etc. 
That was Dr. Russell Petrick with Metro Infectious Disease Consultants and Sarah Connolly, an Associate Professor of Health Sciences at DePaul. And that's today's Reset. I hope you found this information helpful. And please point friends and loved ones to these conversations we're having with experts on Reset. There's nothing better to calm fears and slow the spread of the virus than thoughtful questions and informed answers. For the latest on COVID-19 in Chicago and beyond, go to wbez.org slash coronavirus. I'm Jen White. Stay safe, stay sane, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.